You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie from the U.S. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you're listening to your favorite international podcast. If you're a regular, thanks for joining us for yet another week of murder, mystery, and the macabre throughout history. And if you're new, we're two online friends who never met in real life yet, and who meet online once a week to talk to you about all different kind of dark and interesting topics. Our episodes are usually full of history, as we both are very interested in it, and we actually won the Best History and Best Female Hosted category in the People's Choice Podcast Awards 2022. Yeah. Thank you to everyone of you out there, our amazing listeners. We really wouldn't and couldn't do this without you. And as always, we would love to give a special shout out to our newest Patreon members. They are Shannon Barber and Mary Cummings. Thank you, Shannon and Mary. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your support. And also a big, huge hello and mwah, thank you to our long-term patrons of all levels. Yes. We appreciate you so much. We are just sincerely so grateful for your supporting us and sort of believing in us in that way. For more info on Patreon and how that all works, our webpage, merch, P.O. Box, all that other stuff, uh, we'll talk about it at the end because now it's time to get into today's episode. Johanna, what do you have for us today? You're telling me about something and I'm excited for it. So today I would like to talk to you about a building. We had several episodes about buildings yet. A building with a very interesting past, of course, often said, sometimes downright horrific. And some do believe that this building is one of the most haunted buildings in Germany, maybe even in Europe. And it's the Belitz Heilstätten. What does Heil Heilstätten mean? It's the plural of Heilstätte, and Heilstätte means uh, sanatorium. <laughs> like, of course it is. <laughs> uh, also, I want to apologize. I might be switching around between sanatorium and sanitarium. What is the other word? Sanitarium? Sanitarium. And sanitarium. Are interchangeable? The Latin word that we use in the German language would be just like you use sanatorium. Mm -hmm. But I keep messing it up. But as Annie said, it's both interchangeable. So I think it will be fine. So, Yeah, definitely. All right. So this is a haunted German sanitarium. Mm -hmm. Sanatorium. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm here for that. That's exciting. <laughs> you know how often we start to research and take notes and think, I mean, that will be a straightforward episode. But then you read so many interesting things and there's so much to talk about that it turns into a two-parter. Me? No, I have no idea what that's never happened me? to you, right? Never. Never happens to me. Well, the same thing happened with this one. This will be a two-part episode. This one today will be about the history of the sanitarium, a little bit about tuberculosis and so on. So this is very heavy on the historical side of things. And next week will be about the alleged haunting and a serial killer known as the Beast of Belitz. I hope everyone is on board with this. Yes. <laughs> All right. Let's go. I want to tell you about the Belitz Sanatorium, 
as I said, and that one was built between 1898 and 1930 in Belitz, just 54 kilometers or 33.5 miles southwest of the Berlin city center. We talked about Berlin at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century a couple of times already. I know we discussed it in the Hauptmann of Köpenick or when we talked about the murder of Lucy Berlin. So for more detailed info about how life was in Berlin in those decades, please listen to those episodes. But you need to know that just like most other European and North American metropolitan areas, the Industrial Revolution that occurred in the second half of the 19th century started a growth spurt for Berlin. In 1877, Berlin had reached 1 million inhabitants, and only 30 years later, in the 1920s, more than 4 million people called Berlin their home. And of course, that kind of growth is caused by two main reasons. First of all, a lot of people migrated to the cities to find work um, in construction, for example, or in the newly built factories, or in transportation, and all those other professions that were needed to cater to an ever-growing population. And secondly, more areas were incorporated into the city area. While in medieval times the European cities were way, way, way smaller settlements surrounded by city walls, in the 17th century those walls started to slowly disappear and the settlements grew and spilled into the surrounding areas, swallowing the tiny villages that had formed just outside the city gates. And during the turn of the 20th century the city incorporated more and more towns. So in the 1920s, Berlin was the second largest city in the world, when we look at the actual size of the city. Uh, number one was Los Angeles, and Berlin was the third largest city in the world when it comes to population. First place was, of course, New York, and that one was followed by London. So Berlin was big, crowded, fast-paced. Berlin had a lot of historical firsts, for example, the first electrical streetcar, and the first advertising pillars in the world were both placed in Berlin. That happened at the end of the 19th century. Hmm. So there are a lot of people now suddenly living in Berlin. Most of them are poor working class people. Living space is scarce, with more and more people arriving daily. And so rents are high and are growing higher by the day. Mostly a tiny apartment is shared with several people. There's no running water, of course. Often no window, only shared toilets. And of course, the newly opened factories and the increase in people needing things like heat and transportation leads to a very poor air quality. This, with the very bad hygienic standard in the living quarters, causes a lot of health issues. I like this excerpt from an article I found in the German magazine Spiegel, and it's titled Berlin's Turn of the Century Growing Pains, and uh, it was written by Eva Maria Schnur. Quote, Prior to 1870, visitors to Berlin found themselves confronted with little more than a swampy backwater. As the turn of the century approached, however, the city underwent vast and rapid change, becoming one of Europe's most modern metropolises by 1914. But along with industry and infrastructure, the changes also brought poverty and pestilence. The air smells of dust and the ground is riddled with construction pits. Here a house is being torn down, there the skeleton of a new one stands nearly twice as high as the old building rose. Nearby, workers are leveling the sand for a new street. The city is so full of construction sites and such a vast array of new buildings are coming into being that anyone returning to the city after an absence of a couple of months or visiting after having consulted an outdated guidebook is bound to feel out of place. Quote, 
I feel lost in Berlin. It has no resemblance to the city I had supposed it was. There was once a Berlin which I would have known from descriptions in books, a dingy city in a marsh, with rough streets, muddy and lantern-lighted dividing straight rows, ugly houses all alike, compacted into blocks as square and plain and uniform and monotonous and serious as so many dry goods boxes. But that Berlin has disappeared. It's a new city, the newest I have ever seen. The main mass of the city looks as if it had been built last week, end quote. American author Mark Twain wrote in the Chicago Daily Tribune after spending half a year in Berlin starting in October 1891. Uh, the article continues. Berlin is the most American city in Germany, many proud Berliners said in a praise of their home. Quote, a new Berlin emerged with modern facilities, asphalt paving, an enormous network of tram lines and with all the comforts modern technology could produce, end quote, reflected author Edmund Edel, chronicler of Berlin's bohemian scene, looking back in 1908. Berlin is the most American city in Europe, others complained with distaste, wrinkling their noses at this upstart culture, the big city materialism and mishmash or mishmash of architecture and culture. The city came to represent both promise and purgatory. The only thing everyone could agree on, it seemed, was a distinct lack of enthusiasm when Berlin became capital of the German Empire in 1871. Population growth was similarly dramatic in the city itself, which until 1920 had its boundary to the north at the edges of Wedding and present-day Prenzlauer Berg. To the south it was what is today Kreuzberg, to the west in what is now Tiergarten, to the east in present-day Friedrichshain. Berlin's population in 1849 was around 412,000, but by 1880 it had passed the 1 million mark. By 1914, 1.84 million people lived in the city, which had become Europe's most densely populated. Berlin's old baroque buildings were massively overcrowded even in the 1860s, and sanitary conditions were catastrophic. With few toilets, people relieved themselves in public if necessary and disposed of wastewater and excrement in the street gutters where thick, stinking filth made crossing any road an adventure. Oof. Eh. I mean, it's like that in all the cities at the time, I think. I mean... In, in Europe and Northern America, at least. Yeah, it certainly paints a picture. Mm -hmm. British health expert Edwin Chadwick called Berlin the, quote, most foul-smelling, dirtiest, and most pestilent, end quote, capital in the civilized world in 1872, declaring that its citizen could be, quote, recognized by the smell of their clothes, end quote. No. That's something. That's something, <laughs> all right. Relief came in the form of an underground sewage system, a radial system that used pressure pipes and pumping stations to direct wastewater to sewage irrigation fields at the city's outskirts. The before and after effect was astonishing. By 1900, Berlin was considered the cleanest large city in Europe. End quote. This is a really great article and what I just read to you is only a tiny excerpt. And of course, I will link this one and all the other sources in our according album so you can read the whole thing. I'm always happy when I find such articles in English for all of you. Yeah. And I also think it's quite remarkable that in less than two decades, the city planners for Berlin managed to completely turn around things for the Prussian capital. It's fascinating. And I think also it's a very, very good reminder of why it's so important to handle your shit. Like... <laughs> Make, like, a radial sewage system and just take care of your shit. That's mm -hmm. what I'm going to tell myself the next time I look at my to-do list, because it's terrifying. 
and I can't put it off forever. I just need to handle it. But compared to London, they were kind of late to the party with, with the sewage system. Yeah, it's, it does seem a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, For because sure. London was like really a, a trailblazer when it came to sewage system and sewage management. For sure. As I said, it's impressive, but even though Berlin managed to improve the living conditions in the city immensely, there was one problem that couldn't be solved that quickly, and I'm talking about one of the deadliest diseases that plagued most of the world at the time, tuberculosis. And we talked about tuberculosis before, but Annie, would you do me the favor to just read the quick explanation by mayoclinic.org? Of course. So, this says, quote, Tuberculosis, TB, is a potentially serious infectious disease that mainly affects the lungs. The bacteria that cause tuberculosis are spread from person to person through tiny droplets released into the air via coughs and sneezes. Once rare in developed countries, tuberculosis infections began increasing in 1985, partly because of the emergence of HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. HIV weakens a person's immune system so it can't fight the TB germs. In the United States, because of stronger control programs, tuberculosis began to decrease again in 1993, but it remains a concern. Many tuberculosis strains resist the drugs most used to treat the disease. People with active tuberculosis must take many types of medications for months to get rid of the infection and prevent antibiotic resistance. Although your body can harbor the bacteria that causes tuberculosis, your immune system usually can prevent you from becoming sick. For this reason, doctors make a distinction between latent TB, which is when you have a TB infection but the bacteria in your body are inactive and cause no symptoms. Latent TB, also called inactive TB or TB infection, isn't contagious. Latent TB can turn into active TB, so treatment is important. Active TB, also called TB disease, this condition makes you sick and in most cases can spread to others. It can occur weeks or years after infection with the TB bacteria. Signs and symptoms of active TB include coughing for three weeks or more, coughing up blood or mucus, chest pain or pain with breathing or coughing, unintentional weight loss, fatigue, fever, night sweats, chills, loss of appetite. Tuberculosis can also affect other parts of your body, including the kidneys, spine, or brain. When TB occurs outside your lungs, signs and symptoms vary according to the organs involved. For example, tuberculosis of the spine might cause back pain, and tuberculosis in your kidneys might cause blood in your urine. End quote. Yeah, there was also a um, Good Call the Midwife episode about tuberculosis affecting fertility. Yeah. So... The Mayo Clinic mentions that tuberculosis was rare in the Western world up until 1985, which is true if you only look at the more recent history. Uh, a cure for TB was found in the 1940s with the antibiotic streptomycin. Other drugs would follow. But before that, there was no cure for TB and it was deadly in 80% of the cases. And as you just heard from Annie, it is transmitted by tiny droplets uh, through coughing and sneezing. Now imagine how fast it would infect all the other people living in those cramped rooms. And so often parents would infect their infants without even knowing, for example, through feeding or kissing them. I don't know if you know these posters that were issued in the US between the 1930s and 1950s. 
with the, the cute, healthy, rosy cheek toddler. And the toddler is wearing a bib that reads, don't kiss me. And above the baby, it says in bold letters, tuberculosis. And below the child, it's your kiss of affection, the germ of infection. <laughs> you know that one? Mm-hmm. I'm sure most countries had similar campaigns. Uh, in German, they showed a mom kissing her baby, and below that picture it read, Kranke Mutter küsst ihr Kleines, unvorsichtig auf den Mund. Der Bacillus lacht voll Freude, war's die längste Zeit gesund. Which translates to, Sick mother carelessly kisses her baby on the mouth. The bacillus, the like the the little bacteria viruses, the I, bacteria. Bacillus, you don't have that word. We probably do. I just don't know what it is. Bacteria. It's a it's the tiny bacteria. Oh, okay. uh, the bacillus is laughing happily. You've been healthy for the longest time, something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's like the the bacteria are dancing for joy because mm -hmm. they're infecting. Yeah. And you know what? That's actually still true now. It's only because it's on the news constantly. Where I live right now, it's like, don't kiss babies. Don't kiss them. Just to stay away from the babies, even if it's your grandchild or your niece or nephew. There are so many serious viruses you can give to babies. And right now, I don't know if it's the same in Austria, but between the flu and RSV, mm. there's been a really bad RSV yeah, same. Um, outbreak. Yeah, it's just been really bad. So it's just a really good reminder just not to kiss. Just don't kiss babies. I mean, not you specifically, <laughs> Johanna. I know, you're, <laughs> I know you're not out there looking to kiss stranger babies, but someone listening might be. So just don't. Make a funny, make a funny face instead. They'll appreciate that more anyhow. All right. But yeah, so back then, tuberculosis. Yeah, also not yeah. only kissing, also the, the pacifier when the baby drops it, you know, and you want to clean yes. it. Do it with running it water, not put it in your yeah. mouth. Yeah. It's also because yes. of the um, caries. How do you say that in English? I'm not caries. sure. Caries, the, the, the tooth decay. Oh, cavities? Mm-hmm. Oh, you right. can also give that to the baby. Really? Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Yeah, a lot of dentists here were like, I don't know, 20 years ago, they were like, don't lick the pacifier, you're giving the baby tooth decay. Really? Uh -huh. I had no idea. I mean, I've never licked a baby's pacifier, yeah, yeah. so <laughs> I mean, we're fine, but I just, I didn't know things. <laughs> and I think it's so so normal because I can understand it. You're somewhere outside, the baby drops the pacifier, you have your hands full. I'm not judging the moms, but it's just something no. to think about it, maybe. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, back then, there were obviously a lot of things people didn't know about when it came to hygiene, diseases, and prevention. You see, we still have no clue on so many I know. things. We're yeah. going to get so many messages about this. <laughs> people are going to be like, well. So tuberculosis was everywhere and many, many people died. And from tbfacts.org, I have this quote, and that's an absolute amazing place if you want to learn more about the history of tuberculosis. Quote, tuberculosis mortality probably peaked in England in 1780 at a death rate of 1,120 for each 100,000 living people each year. This means that one and a quarter percent of the entire population died of the disease each year. It is not known how many people got TB but survived in the 18th century. By the end of the 18th century, one in every four deaths in England was attributable to the disease. That's a lot. One yeah. in four deaths. That's a lot. Then a major reversal occurred and death rates began to fall. 
At this time, knowledge of disease was derived almost exclusively from its symptoms. But dissatisfied with vague explanations of the disease, physicians started to search for more concrete knowledge by dissecting the bodies of dead patients. In 1700, John Manchet was carrying out such an autopsy when he observed tubercles so small as to resemble millet seed presented in all parts of the body. This type of disseminated disease is now called miliary tuberculosis. Around the turn of the 19th century, the death rate worldwide was estimated at 7 million people a year, with 50 million people openly infected. London and New York were two of the worst affected cities. Consumption, that's how tuberculosis was also called, or Schwindsucht in German. Hmm. Consumption was probably the most common killer of American colonial adults. It accounted for more than 25% of death in New York City between 1810 and 1815. In the late 19th century, the level of TB was so high in Europe that many people with TB moved to what were perceived as the favorable climates of distant colonies such as South Africa. There is more about the history of tuberculosis in South Africa, end quote. So the last sentence tells you what wealthy people did when they suffered from tuberculosis. They thought, as it is a disease of the lung, that a change of scenery would help to treat TB. So they would travel to places like Davos in uh, Switzerland, or Madeira, or as mentioned, South Africa, or in the United States, the Adirondacks. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado, the where The Shining was meant mm-hmm. to be based on, is was built as a uh, exactly that for yeah. tuberculosis. Yeah. We have so many beautiful antique hotels that used to be for tuberculosis. So, I mean, I don't want to say upside, but... <laughs> There they would lie on, on sun chairs wrapped up in blankets and they would enjoy the fresh air to strengthen their lungs, right? Yeah, by sun chairs you of course mean a chaiselon. <laughs> because these people have money, right? I still don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> Sounds wrong, no matter how you say it. But what would the working class people do everywhere or in Berlin? They couldn't afford some fancy spa in the Swiss Alps. No. The Prussian government was starting to get worried. This was a highly infectious disease, and if they wouldn't find a way to deal with it, more and more people would die. And let's not kid ourselves, it's not like the Prussian state was different than any other state. They were not so much concerned with the individual death, but they did care of their workforce and and their military being decimated. Right, okay. So the Landesversicherungsanstalt Berlin, which is the state-owned insurance company for the workers in Berlin, they were tasked with building a sanatorium close to Berlin. And so they did. On 200 hectares or 295 acres, they built one of the biggest, most modern tuberculosis sanitariums in the world. At first, they could house 1,200 patients who were separated by sex and severity of the infections. All the bedrooms were facing south with big windows to let sun and fresh air in. They were served five meals a day. Uh, The sanatorium was basically self-sufficient. They had a bakery, a butcher, fruit and vegetable plantations, uh, farms for livestock. They were adamant to serve their patients enough food so that they could regain their strength and recover. For breakfast, they would be served bacon and cheese. Meat would be served for every lunch. Can you imagine what a luxury all of this was for the people who were sent there? There was so much food served that patients would often put some in their pockets to give it to their family on visitation day. And of course, that was strictly forbidden. 
and during mealtimes, a nurse would stand on a balcony overlooking the dining rooms to prevent people from doing so, but also the nurse would take care that the patients would eat slowly and use the cutlery and not their fingers. Important. They also had other amenities, like there was a hairdresser, uh, they had a beer garden. Wow. The heating and air ventilation system was one of the most modern technologies at the time. There were electrified elevators that were added later. All buildings were connected with underground tunnels. And they didn't only invest in modern technology, they made the whole place look really beautiful. I mean, there were buildings added constantly over 30 years, and so there's quite a bit of different architectural styles. But the first buildings were designed by Heino Schmieden, and they are beautiful brick buildings. The style, I asked Annie how she would call the style, and it looks very similar to what you might know as Tudor Revival in Anglophone countries. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to pinpoint it in German. Here it was right at the transition from Historismus to Art Nouveau and to modern architecture. I will post photos and it's definitely closest to Tudor Revival. The whole sanatorium honestly looked like a place for wealthy people and not for the working class because they believed that not only the medical treatments and fresh air were key to treating any disease, but in also feeling like cozy and comfortable in your surrounding. Yeah, this is amazing. This is what care should be like today for everyone. Like, I'd never want to leave, right? And I think many of those patients, they never would leave, would they? So that would be the end of their life. And it's nice that they were able to be somewhere where they were safe and warm and fed. You know, you can't really ask for too much more than that in life. And you showed me the building, and it is this amazing brick mansion with very fancy chimneys. It's gorgeous. And like, you know, timber with like the little beams in it. It's, you won't be disappointed. It's good. Then World War I, the Great War came around and the Belitz Heilstätten were needed to treat soldiers. In 1,500 beds, sick and wounded soldiers were treated. Among them, a name all of you know, Adolf Hitler, Hitler had been stationed in France and on 5th of October 1916, he was injured by a grenade on his left leg and he was sent to Belitz to recover. There he spent two months and in March of 1917, he's sent back to the Western Front. The war ends in 1918 and by 1920, the Belitz Heilstätten are back to operating as a sanatorium to treat tuberculosis and other lung diseases. And of course, Hitler gets to go to the excellent hospital with like the good beds and the view and all the food. No gangrene and sepsis for him. He's fine. So then World War II started and the tuberculosis patients had to once more make space for wounded soldiers. But it was in the 1940s that sanatoriums for tuberculosis patients would become less and less important anyway. Because in 1943, Albert Schatz and Selman Waxman first isolated streptomycin, the first effective medicine or antibiotic to cure tuberculosis. We would say streptomycin here. Aha, uh-huh, okay. Sorry. Can no, I no, still no, say it's it totally in German? Fine. <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally fine. By the way, streptomycin or streptomycin is not only used to treat tuberculosis, it is also prescribed for things like mitre fever endocarditis, plague, and red bite fever. That doesn't sound like fun. (laughs) I was just going to say. Can you imagine, like, you have cat scratch fever and, like, your neighbor has rat bite fever? (laughs) 
Hmm, I have puppy fever. Does that count? Me too. I always have puppy <laughs> fever, though. It nets. Exactly. <sighs> There's no cure for that. No. So the war ended in 1945, and having this huge sanatorium for tuberculosis patients was now obsolete. So what would happen to the Beelitz Heilstätten? Well, again, we already talked about it briefly. I have the feeling we talked about a lot of things in those last three years. Yeah, but this period of history is not really a strength of mine, so I'm always really glad when you sort of remind me what was happening, and I know I'm not alone in that. So after the war, after World War II, Germany and Austria were divided into four military zones governed by the four occupation forces, the US, Great Britain, France, and Russia. And Germany would remain a divided nation for a very long time, being split into the Federal Republic of Germany, or colloquially known as West Germany, uh, with its capital Bonn, and the German Democratic Republic, mostly referred to as East Germany, with its capital East Berlin. Because even though Berlin was located in East Germany, it was a divided city. A wall separated the East German parts of the city from the West German parts. West Germans could travel to Berlin by train or car via the so-called Transitautobahnen, where they were not allowed to leave the Autobahn. So how about Belitz? Well, Belitz, as I said, was located 54 kilometers southwest of Berlin. Uh, it's located in Brandenburg. And therefore, it was in East Germany. The Soviet military decided to use the Belitz Heilstätten and they turned it into the biggest Soviet military hospital outside of the USSR, uh, treating Russian military personnel and their families who were stationed in East Germany. Allegedly, even Vladimir Putin had been a patient at Belitz, but these rumors can't be verified now because there are no documents left. There is another occupant of Belitz Heilstätten that is in fact confirmed. Erich Honecker. Does the name ring a bell? It doesn't for me. I okay. feel like it should. So Honecker had been the head of the German Democratic Republic from 1971 until 1989. He was one of the main brains behind the construction of the Berlin Wall, and he endorsed the so-called order to fire policy, meaning that border troops were allowed to use lethal force on every citizens of the GDR who tried to flee the country. Erich Honecker dictated, because that's, he was a dictator, the life of millions of people for over 20 years until the end of the 1980s when the GDR, the Iron Curtain, started to fall. Any, I sent you a quote from uh, cbc.eu. Yes. It's from the uh, Liechtenstein University. It's an excerpt from an article titled The Collapse of the German Democratic Republic GDR. Could you just read that with your of lovely course. voice? Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Take a break. Get a sip. All right. Quote, there was a growing wave of opposition supported by the Protestant churches, which in the autumn of 1988 called for a society with a human face, and subsequently, in 1989, for a liberalization of the regime. Large numbers of opponents gathered for, quote, Monday prayers, protesting against the police state and calling for democracy. Reform groups in the Socialist Unity Party of Germany advocated, quote, socialism with a human face. End quote. A third way between the Stalinist socialism of the GDR and the liberal capitalism of the Federal Republic of Germany, or FRG. 
This, they claimed, would ensure the survival of East Germany rather than its absorption into West Germany. However, the reformers soon found themselves overtaken by events. A series of vast demonstrations took place, calling for freedom of thought, freedom of the press, and freedom of assembly. The people of East Germany wanted more than simply a reform of the GDR and socialism. They wanted a share of the prosperity enjoyed by West Germany, which had seen a massive influx of refugees from East Germany. They demonstrated in favor of a united Germany. The East German government, led by Erich Honecker, was counting on Soviet support to save the regime. But Gorbachev, wary of compromising his policy of reproachment with the West, refused any sort of military intervention, and confirmed the fact to Helmut Kohl when he visited Bonn on the 13th of June, 1989. Gorbachev tried to persuade the East German leaders to proceed with reforms along the lines of perestroika. The GDR was experiencing an overwhelming financial crisis. Moreover, the refusal to pursue perestroika and glasnost was not well received by the people. In early 1989, these socioeconomic factors caused the people of East Germany to flee to the West, a movement that the East German regime was powerless to prevent. The pressure of people for reform increased in October with the symbolic Monday demonstrations. Can you say the German? Montagsdemonstrationen. There we go. On 18 October, Honecker, who refused to yield to the public's demands, was stripped of his post and replaced as leader of the Communist Party by Egon Krenz, with Moscow's approval. Hans Madro, who was in favor of the reforms, became head of government. But it was too late. On 4 November, the new leaders were booed by a crowd of a million people gathered on Alexanderplatz in East Berlin. On the 9th of November, this led to the decision to authorize travel abroad. Immediately, thousands of people wanted to cross through the frontier posts in Berlin, which were forced to open up to the crowd. The demonstrators started to demolish the Wall of Shame. Several million East Germans visited West Berlin, the, quote, shop window of the West. The following day, 10th November, the leaders of the GDR promised that, quote, free and secret elections would take place in May 1990. However, continuing demonstrations forced them to bring the elections forward to the 18th of March. The socialist reformers were defeated, and the Christian Democrat Lothar de Matzier became head of government of the GDR. On 12th April, he declared himself in favor of a unified Germany within NATO and the European community. End quote. All right. Very interesting. Yeah, it is. I think that's the kind of history maybe in the U US you don't know too much about it. As I said, I completely lived through it. Austria was directly next to the Iron Curtain with a border yes. to, to Czech Republic and to Hungary. And so there were just places you couldn't, you just couldn't go. You couldn't, yeah. Some people could if you were visiting family or something like that. But it was really, really hard. And there were a lot of refugees coming. For example, around the time, uh, 1989, uh, to Austria from Hungary, fleeing a lot of East German people because they could go on vacation to Hungary, former Yugoslavian countries, Czech Republic, and they were fleeing the country via the, the green border, Hungary, Austria. Wow. So yeah, now Erich Honecker was not the leader of the state anymore. He and his wife Margot had to leave their home 
and they found refuge at the Belitz Heilstätten, where the doctors diagnosed a malignant tumor in Honecker's liver, and they stayed there for several months. In November of 1990, an arrest warrant was issued for Erich Honecker for the role he had played in the deaths that occurred at the inner German border in Berlin, the so-called Death Strip. Honecker could escape on a Russian military jet fleeing to Moscow, where the couple sought refuge at the Chilean embassy. Uh, they wanted to, to move to Chile. Margaret was actually allowed to travel to Chile. I think their daughter was married to a Chilean citizen. Okay. Honecker, however, was extradited back to Germany, where he was supposed to stand trial for the death of 68 people. Of course, he was responsible for way more deaths. Yeah. But due to Honecker's failing health, the trial was abandoned, and Honecker was allowed to travel to Chile, where he died of liver cancer in 1994. So if you're still listening, I know this is an episode about the Belitz Sanatorium, yeah. Not about Erich Honecker or the GDR, but I don't know. Mostly it's like that. Many things are connected and I just found this too interesting to not tell you. Well, and if it is haunted, and I know we're going to discuss this next week, but if it is haunted, it's interesting that so many people that I would say were truly problematic human beings to their core. Like if you think that Evil is something that creeps around. You know what I mean? It's it's interesting that these people who were responsible for the deaths of, I mean, Hitler, forget about it, right? How, yeah. how do you even begin? So, yeah, that's interesting. A little bit interesting. Exactly. So if we want to talk about the haunting next week, we, we have to know the history of the place because otherwise nothing's going to make sense. Right. So back to the Belitz Heilstätten in 1994, Germany had been reunified. The Soviet army left Germany and the Belitz Heilstätten were just abandoned. There was an investor who wanted to renovate the huge building complex but failed to the immense amount of money the whole project would have cost the renovation oh, yeah. of these historic buildings. Yeah. So he, I think he went bankrupt and the buildings were left to their own devices and nature and vandalism caused the beautiful sanatorium to decay. And I think that's it for this week. This was a lot of history about the Belitz Heilstätten. Next week, we will talk about the alleged haunting. We will talk about ghost hunters. We will debunk some of the rumors that involve the Belitz Heilstätten. And we will talk about a serial killer, the Beast of Belitz. That's a lot. That's a lot to unpack. That's so, a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. And you will learn what happened to the aerial recently, how you can visit or even live there if you want to, and what you can expect from a visit at the Belitz Heilstätten nowadays. That sounds fantastic, and I can't wait to hear all about it. It sounds really, truly very terrible, so that's going to be great. Do you have something good while I sip yes. on my drink? So this is your reminder to stay on top of your breast health, because... I actually missed my routine mammogram in 2021 because I was recovering from that other surgery. And then by the time I was well enough to go out and do it, it was like, ah, we'll just reschedule, you know, it was close enough to this past January. So I went in and then had the mammogram, went home, no biggie. And then within a week, things moved very, very quickly. I had to go back in for a second mammogram on the right side. Then I had to go for an ultrasound and then another appointment for a breast exam and a consult. And the physician explained that there was just like an area that looked 
different than the tissue. It just looked different on the scan. So they decided to do a biopsy. And hey, look, they have time tomorrow morning. So it was like so fast. So, so fast. But really happy to report that the biopsy came back benign. Uh, The whole thing wasn't it really wasn't that bad. I was really relieved when the doctor doing my breast exam confirmed that you couldn't, like, I didn't miss anything. And I felt relieved because I'm not as good at self-exams as I should be. Mm. And I'm really going to try to be better about it. I really need to try to be better about it, which we all need to be, regardless of your gender, because anyone can get breast cancer. It's obviously much, much more common in women, but it can happen to anyone. So just pay attention. I'm going to try to be a lot better about paying attention to body parts in the future. The the easiest way, because I had the, the breast cancer scare two years ago, you remember? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always do it after my period in the shower while uh, soaping up. Yes. That's the easiest yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I don't have periods anymore. So for me... I, just I have tell to, you like, when's mine. And <laughs> first, yeah, I we know, used to right? be synced. <laughs> we used to be synced, which was the funniest. But yeah, it's, you know, just first of the month, whatever, but exactly. But I was just like, oh man, is this something I should have noticed like sometime between, you know, the, this two year period now? But fortunately, everything yeah. was fine. And I'm so glad it's nothing, really. I know yeah, it's me so too. Scary. Mm. It was it was a little bit scary. It was just a lot very quickly. Yeah. And I'm really lucky that I'm lucky. I'm really lucky that my you know, my care was that good and quick yeah. and responsive. But it was funny because when I was waiting to go in, there was a woman there complaining and she was like talking about how painful it was last time and I was like, Oh god, lady. So when I came out I was like, Oh, I just had my first biopsy, it really wasn't that bad and I could see all these women's shoulders just drop. <laughs> it was like it really wasn't, it wasn't that bad. Mm. The thing that I wasn't expecting is when I think the actual, I think it's all like robotic. So when the actual needle goes in, there was a puff of air like by my face, which I wasn't expecting. Almost like when you have that glaucoma test. Mm-hmm. So that's, that was more of a startle than anything, you know, but everything is so speedy fast. And so, oh, and then they put this little clip in. So there's this like teeny tiny little clip that they put in like where they took the sample from. And so then apparently it'll show up on future scans, so they'll know that this, like, little spot that looks weird was nothing. Yeah, that's smart. Science is cool. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the most fun way to spend the day, but, like, don't don't avoid it, because it's not the worst. My something good is I just had my OBGYN appointment last week. Yeah, last week, and... I want to say that I never went to a female OBGYN. Never. My whole life I just had male doctors, right? And yep. whenever women said, well, they could never or they don't want to go to a man. And I was always like, it's a doctor. Who cares? But now I have a woman and it's the most amazing thing. I won't never. I, I mean, all my doctors were, were capable and nice and, and nothing wrong with them. But seriously, mm-hmm. that's a completely different experience. Completely different. Completely different. I was, I was shocked. I was shook. She was like, "Yeah, oh, I gonna take the how do you call it the 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 swipe." Yep. And I mean, it's always at least uncomfortable. Sometimes downright painful. Like, Mm mm-hmm. When they stab you in the cervix with a spiky little brush. I mean, it's small, but still the the speculum even is uncomfortable. Oh. And she's like, 
She's sitting there talking to me about my socks, which were Snoopy yeah. socks, and she said she likes them. And then she's like, well, we're done with that. And I'm like, wait, we're done? I didn't feel anything. And she's like, yeah, I'm a woman. See? I know how to do that. I was like, oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> so, yeah, whenever you Night hear now other women say, I just want female OBGYNs, yeah. there is a difference. There is. I wouldn't have believed it, but I'm in awe, really. Yeah, it's not that there aren't great male OBGYNs no, out there. No, all my doctors but... were great, but still, yeah. there's there is. I don't know. It's a different. It's a different because it, you don't understand. Yeah, if they can't understand what these things actually feel like, then yeah. they don't know how to adjust for it. Yeah, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So that's my something good. My new OBGYN. I love her. She's the best. Yay! <laughs> no, it's great. <laughs> that was too much information now <laughs> no that's fine you're good you're good it's important uh, it is. to check everything yeah. and men your check checkups. your check your testicles in the shower mm -hmm. regularly please and just check all the things pay attention yeah pay attention pay attention because we love you and we'd miss you if anything happened to you exactly all right so what else do we need to tell you so our website is freshhellpodcast.com and that's where you will find where you can listen to us and how to get in touch with us, our P.O. box. If you want more information on Patreon, you'll find it there. You can also go to patreon.com and search for Fresh Hell Podcast, where you will find our sort of very eclectic offerings for various tiers. <laughs> Facebook group is awesome. Come say hello. It seriously is just the nicest group of people. Oh, we should tell them not to mix it up with the mummy group because we, <laughs> I was laughing so much. Yes. I was laughing the most about the one who was looking for the mummy group. And yeah, who was looking for us and stayed. It's the yeah. best. And stayed. I know. Yeah, there's another. Well, originally there were, there was two, there were two podcasts. The first one was called What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. And so when we started ours, Fresh Hell Podcast, Murder Mystery and the Macabre, we thought, well, that is really, those are very different. Those are clearly very different things. But just because of search algorithms, mm-mm. And now there are also another like half a dozen Fresh Hell somethings or others. I don't know. But we're the original two. One for mummies, one for mummies. You just know which mummy yeah. you want to get into. That's, you know... That's all. Uh, and that's it, I say. Please yeah. tell your pets we said hi. We miss them. We love them. That's right. We love to see all the photos. Please always send us, when in doubt, always send us pet photos, please. Always. Videos. Oh, yes. Everything. We want to see them. It's the best. Please be kind to your fellow human being out there in the wild. I mean, listen to your gut feeling. Don't get yourself in, in dangerous situations because you think you have to be kind. That's not what I mean at all. I'm more like, if somebody pushes the shopping cart into you, just, you know, maybe they didn't see you. Maybe they're stressed. That kind of kind. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Be also yeah. kind to yourself, which is the hardest part of it all. I know. And that's it. That's it. And if you're going through hell... Keep going. Tschüss. See you next week.